We are in week six and the final week of our Long Story Short series where we've been going through uh, the teachings of Jesus that, that he did in parables. It's been a lot of fun going through. We've learned a lot of things and the truths of God that you get from parables are just incredible. Uh, we, we looked at what it means to understand a parable. And so we, we learned some of Jesus's tendencies as he teaches his tendency to reference Old Testament scripture, for example, or to teach uh, parallel stories to kind of emphasize a point or the fact that as students of parables, we're expected not to just solve the parable like a puzzle, uh, but to marinate on it and to they're best consumed in groups and to discuss parables and to let them sit on our heart uh, as we uh, as we let them grow inside of us and teach us. And so really cool things. Uh, we also saw the beautiful reality in this series that when it comes to the truth of God, you can see it everywhere. I mean, Jesus used things like a mustard seed that grows into a big tree and the, the branches like can welcome the people of the earth into its branches. And it had a deep story within that simple thing. He said the kingdom of heaven is like you know a treasure that someone found and was so valuable to them that they sold everything they owned so that they could buy that treasure. And so just the simple things in life can teach us a lot about God and about his love, about his character, about his kingdom. It reminds me of when I was in college. I had a class. It was one of my favorite classes. Uh, my undergrad degree, I minored in youth ministry. And I was a youth pastor for uh, about 10 years, worked with middle school and high school students. Anyway, one of my favorite classes was a class called Youth Ministry Resources and Methods. Resources and Methods. Uh, a lot of practical uh, stuff about how to actually interact with kids and, and teach them and engage with them and their families. And uh, one of the things my professor did every single day was he would pull out from under his desk uh, an object, just an item, any random item. It could be anything. And we were expected as students, he would go through the roll call and he would just pick us in order and uh, just select people. And we were expected to walk up to the front of the room, basically immediately, and look at that item and use it as an object lesson to teach a truth about God and reference some scripture. Do a devotional thought using that object lesson. That First of all, that's a fun game. You should play it with your family. Uh, it just really sharpens your creativity and your Bible knowledge. Um, but it was really cool. It could be anything. It could be a kitchen knife. You know, it could be a, a, a monkey wrench, a box of nails. It could be a beach ball. It could be like anything, can of sardines, whatever. And somebody would come up. And what was neat is that sometimes students would come up and they would nail it. I mean, boom. There was, it, was a, it was a light bulb. It was simple. And they talked about God's light or something. And they referenced a verse. Sometimes they were hard and they would stump us. And that was cool, too, because then we really got to live out this idea of discussing it. As a group, like, man, what did you see when you saw that? And what scriptures come to mind? And the reason I was really happy for that, one thing my professor said was that, you know, it's very likely that your students may not ever remember anything you teach them in a lesson that you labored over and spent hours writing uh, and producing. They may never remember anything you said, but they may never forget something that you just say to them in a natural setting for them while you're sitting with them at a ball game or riding down the road in your car, or playing a video game, and you just... You see a moment. He called them teachable moments. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's what Jesus did best. He was able to take a moment and turn it into a teachable moment where we embrace the truth of God. And the amazing thing about the parables is that we can see that in everyday life, we can take the things we do every day and we can aim them at the heart of God, whether it's in your, your parenting or your occupation or what you're doing with your neighbors, or what you do for a hobby, or the, just the items you have sitting on your shelf can teach you a lot about the heart, the character in the kingdom of God. Uh, and so I think if you're like me, you're someone who longs for a better world. I want to start this morning as we are looking at today's parable. 
I want to start with a simple question. And, and it was the question that really spawned a lot of Jesus' parables. Like, what could the world look like if we did things God's way? Here's our question. Here's our question just to chew on as we get going today. What does it cost to live for Jesus? What does it cost to live for Jesus? I think that most of us would like to live in a better world, like I said. And right now there are people protesting in the streets because they would like to see change. They'd like to see a better world. For months, there have been scientists trying to make a better world by coming up with some solution. For COVID-19, for all of history, moms and dads have looked at their children and they've wished for a better world for them. And so I think we, we long for that. Maybe you're watching today and what you want more than anything is you want a change. Like you wonder if life will ever be different for you. If you're ever going to overcome this thing that you're going through, maybe you're longing for something so much more and, and, and maybe you're not getting it. Or maybe you blame someone for way, the way life is and you wonder, can I ever claim back a lot? Like, I think this is at the heart of what we wonder. And I think the answer to that question of a changed world, I, I do not believe this in politics. I don't believe that it's in policy. I don't think that it's in pay raises or bigger houses or nicer things. I don't, I don't think it would come with a cure to COVID-19. I think we're all sure of that. I believe that the only way to affect real lasting change in your life and in the world around you is full submission to Jesus. I mean, there are a lot of people that would say, God is number one in my life. Like I'm pulling for him. I'm on his team. But that's way different. And I think the church has done a poor job often of teaching that it's not just about being in God's fan club. It's about being fully committed, fully devoted, fully submitting to life in Jesus. And so I love to look to the Bible for life's most important truths that God gives us. And uh, today, as we look at our, our last set of parables, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 as Jesus kind of addresses how we can deal with that question. What does it mean to fully affect change in the world and in your life. So Luke chapter 14, uh, we're going to be there. Uh, grab it on your Bible, scroll down to it in your app on your phone. We could been in, in Luke and Matthew back and forth uh, for all of these weeks because both of them are biographies of the life of Jesus and both of them teach us uh, or show us the teachings of Jesus. And so as we land in Luke chapter 14 today, we'll start in verse 25. So keep on scrolling down through Luke till you get to verse 25. And we're going to just meet Jesus in a setting that we often find him in. Here we go. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, this is harsh. Like when you see a crowd of people gathering around, you do not expect the person at the center of that crowd to be saying things like this. At this point, Jesus was very popular. I cannot emphasize that enough. This says that large crowds were following him. I don't think it does it justice. There are times when thousands of people would be following Jesus just to see him, hear what he had to say. They were hoping he might uh, heal them or their family member. There was a lot of reasons why people followed Jesus, but he was very popular. We like crowds as a society. I mean, I've been to concerts where there were like over 40,000 people gathered and we're singing to the top of our lungs the lyrics of some song. And there's something energetic, exciting about that, like unity, like we're singing together. It's awesome. We have the same 
Go right now. I've been to sporting events, professional football games, for example. Like 100,000 people gathered together. And even if you're pulling for different teams, you're just like, you're pumped to be there. Yeah, yay, boo, touchdown, we hate you, like whatever. But it's cool because we're united around this game. We all want a good game. We love the unity that comes with crowds. And so this is a group of people that are gathered around Jesus. They love them some Jesus. They're pumped. I mean, they're, they're, Jesus is my homeboy, you know. Jesus killed, healed, my, uh, healed my uncle Ezra from leprosy. Uh, oh, yeah? Well, I once was blind, but now I can see. I wrote a song about it, right? It's like these are the people. They're, they're the Jesus fan club. They're wearing their Jesus 2020 t-shirts. They're talking about how they're thinking Peter might make a good running mate for Jesus in the next election. You know what I mean? They're chanting, make Israel great again. This is the crowd we've got. They love them some Jesus. Jesus is so popular. And then he turns around and says something so unpopular. Nobody that's looking for popularity would say what Jesus just says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's like Jesus wasn't even looking at the teleprompter. <laughs> you know, like this is not this is not what you came to hear. And, and so he throws out these two really crazy statements. Now, I want to, um, we haven't even got to the parable yet. We got to get to the parable. This is a series about parables, and that's why we're in this story. But let's talk about the things that he says there really quickly. Just kind of zoom through them. First, he says, hate your family. I thought Jesus was about love. Okay, Jesus is not about hate. Um, this isn't about like hate, like be evil to and despise people. This is not that kind of hate. There was also this understanding when you talked about hate and love when it, it was about choice. Like if basically if you're choosing one thing over something else, it's, it's, it's equivalent to or uh, at least analogous to loving and, or hating it. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to love me, you're going to have to make someone else take the back seat or you're going to have to treat them as if they don't matter because there's, there might be a point where you have to choose between us. And if you want to be my disciple, you need to choose me. That's kind of where he's going with it. It's, it's harsh language. I'm not going to try to uh, butter it up or soften it. It's what he said. It's what he said. He also says this. Carry your cross. The cro I mean, in our culture, the cross is a beautiful thing. Necklaces and earrings. And they put them in beautiful cathedrals. And they're ornate and decorative. In Jesus' day, they were an execution instrument. Okay. So what he's effectively saying is you need to put a hangman's noose around your neck or you, or you need to sit on your electric chair, lay your head down in a guillotine. Like that's what he's saying when he says, carry your cross. Implication here. If you're going to follow me, I got to add this too, for the cross, which was an execution instrument, the, it, the cruel thing that the executioners would do is they would make the criminal carry their cross to the place that they're going to get executed at. And so Jesus says, you need to carry your cross. You need to jump in as if you're a criminal carrying his cross. In other words, if you're going to jump in and follow me as a disciple, you need to understand, you're a dead man walking. you got a target on your chest. I can't promise you happiness and unicorns and rainbows. Because the decision you're making is life-changing. It's going to alter the way you interact with the world around you. And then he says, you do all this, you got to do all this to be my disciple. That word disciple, a disciple is a, a follower, a learner, a student. 
And it was more than just like you sit and took a class at you know at community college. It was like no, like you're all in with your your teacher. I am completely embracing the mantle is what they call it of your lifestyle and your teachings. If you want to be my disciple, you know, count the costs. You got to carry the cross. You you're going to have to let go of the old life. You're going to have to embrace a new life. And so um, that that's what we get going with. It makes me think about the church today, American plush consumer Christianity is what I call it. Uh, man, hardly does a week go by where I don't hear someone comparing one church to another church. I'm a pastor. People talk to me about churches. It's like a thing. It's not my favorite thing to talk about, believe it or not, but, uh, you know, comparing churches. But people do it all the time. Uh, and, and they talk about the church. And if you've been guilty of this, I want to call you out. Okay. We talk about the church like we're shopping for a new car. Well, look at all the features this one has. This one's got safety features, and look at those cup holders. Like, we compare them and contrast them in such a way that, like, th there's a hierarchy of what's a better church and what's a not better church. And, you know, I don't think that's what Jesus would want us to do at all. If I think Jesus would flip his wig to be in conversations with us when we talk about the church like it's a timeshare with options. And then we complain about how hard it is. I mean, it's, I can't, can't. It's hard to struggle to get five minutes of Bible study in every week. Oh, I don't know if I can commit to this volunteer role that I've got, and all these different things. And Jesus is like, "What? This isn't what I came to establish. I came to establish a place of unity. When we talk junk about other churches, or we compare and contrast them like that, you know that it only serves to to cause disunity. So I want to say, I want to say this." First, do not hear me saying anything bad about another church. I am not comparing Venture, like we've got it all together, uh, to any other church in town saying you should be more like us. That that ain't happening because I believe that's a sin. I think to cause disunity in the body like that is divisive and sinful. The other thing, though, that I want to say is, honestly, I'm pretty proud of our church family. I think a lot of you are doing, at least trying to do your best to live out this calling, to uh, put Jesus first. And um, so props to you on that. And, I hope, and it's inspiring to me. And I hope it's inspiring to others. So that's kind of like a side note. As we look at what Jesus is saying here, you look at what the church is and we're like, oh, we should probably make some adjustments. So I'm thankful that Jesus takes the time to teach this parable. We're here. We're finally at the parable. Okay. So uh, if you tuned out during that part, tune back in. We're on our parable. And we're going to pick up at verse 28 because Jesus is going to illustrate his point. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay down the foundation and you're not able to finish it, well, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build but was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the others are still long way off, and he'll ask for terms of peace. So two parables here. Uh, once again, he's going to give some parallel parables. We've got a tower builder, like you do, building towers, and a king that's fighting a war, and, and he's vastly outnumbered by the opponent. So let's check into these parables. Let's see where Jesus is going. Let's see what we can learn from them today. Uh, first, the tower builder guy. Okay, I think this, with all my heart, I believe this. I believe that if Jesus was teaching in Wilmington today, I do not believe he would tell a story about a tower builder. 
because there is a much better example in Wilmington that he would point directly to. And I think that you know what it is. The answer would be Taco Roos. You with me? You know Taco Roos? If you're watching this and you don't you don't live in Wilmington or you you don't uh, you don't know the Taco Roos story, oh my goodness, I, I cannot begin to adequately uh, explain to you what a public spectacle of poor planning this has been in Wilmington. Now listen, if you're a Taco Roos owner and you happen to watch this, I'm a fan. I'm still a believer in Taco Roos, but apparently there were some miscalculations. And think, this is what happened, okay? Uh, we got real excited a couple months ago. Months ago, has it been two years ago? Maybe I don't know. It's been a long time. When we saw that the old Hardee's restaurant next to campus at UNCW was being renovated, and we were like, "Sweet, a new restaurant! What's it going to be? It's going to be another Chick Fil A. It's going to be another thing." People were speculating all these things. And then one day, by the way, that took a really long time to build. It took. It was like there was one guy out there just by himself every day building this new restaurant. But eventually, it was looking good. Like, man, okay, well they're taking their time. Anything that is worth doing is worth doing right, right? So so he's like out there taking his time. And, and then suddenly this bright, colorful sign pops up and it says, coming soon, Taco Ruse. And we're all like, what the heck is a Taco Ruse? And I, I don't know how you felt about it, but I was like, sign me up. If it starts with taco, I don't care what a ruse is. I'm going to I'm gonna have one. So me and my family, we're planning. We're going to go when it opens. And so on the marquee outside, it begins saying, hey, we're now hiring employees. That totally makes sense. You would need employees. And that signs up there for a really long time. We're like, well, okay. What if you guys are still hiring employees? And then it starts having like a countdown on the outside marquee. And it counts down like Taco Roo's opening in 29 days or something like that. And it's counting down, counting down. And it gets to like opening day. And this excitement is built. It became a buzz around town. Like, I don't know why Taco Roo's got everyone's attention. I think it's because of the location and the colorfulness of it. And the name is pretty cool. And opening day came. And nothing happened. Just nothing. It didn't open. We were like, oh, that's okay. Openings are delayed sometimes. Didn't open the next day. Didn't open the next day. Didn't open the next week. Didn't open the next month. Eventually, a sign goes up on the marquee, and it says, now hiring managers. And I don't know about you, but I was thinking, like, I would have probably hired managers before I picked an opening date. Uh, but, man, that's just me. I've never run a restaurant. So that that just kicks it into full gear. Okay, so spoiler alert, Taco Roos does not open for a long time, continues to not open. And somebody decides that it's going to be funny to just begin to make it an internet spectacular. So uh, th th someone started, like, a spoof Facebook page. Uh, if you want to see it, it's great. It's called Not a Taco Roos. Just look for that on Facebook. It's worth your time. It's hilarious. And people begin to post memes about Taco Roos. Check out some of these memes. Uh, Haggard gets in on the act. We got Darth Vader talking about Taco Roos. Nancy Pelosi in one of her finest moments this year. She's upset about Taco Roos. And then, I mean, don't make Michael Phelps mad. Okay, so someone even designed a t-shirt. It said Taco Roos. Roos? I think you pronounce it the same way. Isn't that funny? Oh, man. And so that's going on. And it's like this subculture of Taco Roos jokes. But then it happened. Taco Roos opened. Or did it? If you go to Taco Roos, their menu is a cookout menu. Like the restaurant. Cookout. It turns out Taco Roos is apparently owned by the same people that own cookout. Which The really weird thing about that is there is a cookout like a half mile down the road or something. There's a cookout right there. But when they open, they open with a cookout menu. Except for one, they have a specialty. They got something called the walk-in taco, which apparently the lady at the window told me is a bag of Doritos that they open up and they put taco seasoning toppings inside of it. I guess you can 
walking while you're eating that taco. Uh, so walking taco. Oh, and they serve coffee. The weirdest thing. And it has been, so if you're from Wilmington, you get it. You know it's funny. You know something that we're all talking about and laughing about. It, what's the point? I, if Jesus lived in Wilmington, I don't think he would have told a story about a guy who built a tower and didn't have the money to finish it. I think he would point it right at Taco Roos and he says, you don't want to be like Taco Roos, do you? You don't want your faith to line up like that, where you went all in, got everybody excited, and then you just didn't know what you were getting into. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to first sit down and count the cost of what it means to follow me. Don't just jump on the bandwagon. Don't just get in there because it's popular and because you just want to just have some kind of faith that you could put on a resume somewhere. Because following Jesus is not a hobby. It's all or nothing. That's what following Jesus is. It's everything. Now, he's not saying that we need to understand everything about God before we decide to put our faith in Jesus. That's not what he's saying, thank goodness. But he is saying you need to understand what you're getting into because the rest of your life needs to be dedicated towards seeking the heart of God with your actions and your relationships, your character, your thoughts, and everything that you do. That's the first parable, the parable of the guy who tries to build a tower, a.k.a. the Takaru's parable. The second parable that we get is very similar. We get a king. Now, I'm gonna. we've done so many parables, I just want to kind of skip through this one. It's a parallel parable, which means it's going to teach the same point as the first parable, but, but it's different. It's a little bit different, and actually, as I read through it, I was like, oh, wait, it, it is a little bit different. It's kind of got some different nuance to it. So you got this, this king, okay, he's going to go to war. Long story short for that is... The battle he's about to face is is a, a army that's twice the size of his army. And so he's got to count the cost. Can I defeat this army? If I can defeat them, let's fight. If I can't defeat them, we probably need to surrender. Uh, and and I, I think this is not like make a, a treaty kind of talk. This is like surrender talk. It's like give up and say, you win, uncle, right? Uh, Jesus says, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000 men? Uh, Craig Blomberg is one of my favorite scholar um, commentators, and he says this, and he really summarizes, I think, well, these two parables because they're a little bit different. He says, the first parable about the tower asks if, if we can count the cost to be a disciple. Like, do you know what you're getting into? But the second parable asks if we can afford to pay the price of refusing the call of Jesus. In other words, one, what will it cost you if you do follow Jesus? Or two, what will it cost you if you don't decide to follow Jesus? Because there's a cost either way. When we face this other army, this 20,000, the question that I think comes to mind for me as I'm digging through it myself is, what are the rivals for me and for you to our relationship with Jesus? What is the 25,000? Or I guess the 10,000. What is the 10,000? The 20,000, I believe, is God's army. Okay, it's going to be the bigger, more powerful, more strong army. What is the thing that we're facing? And, and what is the rival to that? I mean, is it your family rivaling Jesus? Is it your career? Is it your hobby or sport that you play? Or is it a lot of travel that you do? Man, I'm on the road so often, I just can't, can't have a good relationship with God. Is it your house? Is it your car? Is it your own personal looks and demeanor? Like, what is it? Because there's all these things in our life that stand opposed to God. And Jesus says, listen, before you try to fight that battle, you need to see what you're getting into. Because it might be best for you to just surrender. 
Surrender that thing, uh, which is why Jesus concludes the whole parable talk. We're going to get in verse 33, and I think this is where Jesus really just drops the mic. Okay, This is Luke chapter 14, verse 33. He says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Giving up everything. That word there means uh, it's about renouncing ownership of or giving up claim to everything belongs to God now. I'm giving it up. And when we get into this Jesus thing, if you've chosen to be a Jesus follower, we often make it, uh, we, we try to paint it like a, a non-confrontational easy thing, especially for us, Venture Church. We're a church who, one of our biggest goals, we say we're church for people who don't like church. And we, it is tempting, believe me, it is tempting for me to the point where I almost didn't preach this parable. I mean, I was tempted not to. And I was like, no, it's, it'd be the right thing to do to preach it. It's tempting for us to kind of like soften the blow of what does it mean to give up our life and give our life to God? What does that mean? We call it watering it down because it's tempting to want to just soften the blow. Hey, you know, Jesus doesn't really want, Jesus just loves everybody. Well, he does. He loves everybody, but he wants our heart. He wants us to submit to him. Counting the cost is about knowing what I'm getting into. See, it's so easy to ask Jesus to be my Savior and really want that because, man, I don't want to go to hell. And then totally not accept Jesus as my Lord. Jesus as Savior versus Jesus as Lord. Which is it? Well, it's both. You get both. But there's a conflict in our mind there. Every week I've been giving us a long story short summary. And there was a lot that I wanted to put into this sentence uh, and, and then it just becomes like a long story long. Um, but here, here's the best I could do in my heart where I am on what Jesus is saying and what we can walk away with this. Long story short, following Jesus is about choosing him first every time, even when it means sacrificing something else that is fighting for our attention. It's about choosing him first. There might be something else we really want and really desire, but we have to say, no, Jesus, you have ownership of that. Does it mean I have to hate my wife and like leave her and divorce her? Of course not. That's not at all. Jesus preaches against hate and divorce. But what he says is, listen, compared to how much you're going to serve me, you've got to be willing to, if it comes down between your family and you, I've, you've got to choose me. But what that can also mean is I look at my wife, my marriage, and my parenting, and I can say, I renounce ownership of that. Jesus, I give it to you. I want this to be your marriage. I want it to be your family. I want it to be your finances and your hobbies. And what's cool is when you do that, you can start to see that there are some things that, oh, this is your, wait, that's an addiction. Well, I'm going to give it to you because I don't need it anymore, but I don't need it at all. Some of the things we renounce to Jesus begin to become insignificant in our lives, and we decide we don't need them and we don't want them. It's about choice, not about comfort. It's about choosing the eternal over the temporary. It's about accepting God's rule over our life instead of pretending like I can run it better by myself. And I can easily put up the white flag of surrender to that army of 20,000 and say, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. I surrender to your terms and I just want to serve you. Now, I imagine Jesus' crowd that day thinned out after he said all that. I was here for the free miracles. They're not giving out free miracles today. Deuces. I'm out. But Jesus wanted to know, wanted them to know what they were getting into. The question is, is it worth it? I mean, it sounds harsh, 
to say all that. So is it worth it? Well, Jesus, I mean, he was more than just a rabbi or some cool teacher who said a lot of cool things. Jesus was God in the flesh. And here's what I know about cost. He says, count the cost. You know what cost uh, is determined by? Cost is determined by value. So what is the value that I'm getting for the cost? The Son of God. Jesus, God in the flesh. Is it worth it? Well, for over 2,000 years, disciples have determined, yes, it is worth it. Some of them figuratively giving their lives, many of them literally laying down their lives when it called for it. For some people, it's about choosing Jesus over a relationship or over a career. Some people have been disowned by their family. Others have had to move away uh, because their family was going to, to, to injure them. Others have moved into danger because in these hostile areas, the love of Jesus needs to be shared, and so they decided to become missionaries to those people. But generation after generation and time after time have shown that Jesus and a Jesus-centered life is the only response that will truly change your life and change the world around you eternally. It will redeem your soul and will make a lasting change in this world. And is it worth it? Yes, from my experience, it's been 100% worth it. Is it easy? A lot of times, no. A lot of times it's great. If, if, especially when we're living in a sweet spot in Jesus's walk, in our walk with Jesus, it's, it, it's great. But Jesus says, just count the cost. Know what you're getting into. It's going to require carrying your cross. So I say it's worth it. And I'm praying every day that I can live up to it. But guess what? I don't. I don't live up to it every day. And that's why I'm thankful for this huge piece of the Jesus story. That Jesus did carry his cross. And he did carry it to completion without giving up. He did it perfectly. And God's word tells me that if I will believe in his resurrection, because he defeated that death, and put my faith in him, that I will be saved, that I will have eternal life with God, and that on this side of heaven I can live in his kingdom. Now this is a parable, and it's meant to sit on your heart and resonate for a while, and to be discussed in groups. But long story short, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. So count the cost and carry your cross. Let's pray.